take your Bible and turn to John chapter 20. I'm going to bounce around a little bit today um, in the book of John near the end especially, but if you'll turn to John chapter 20, that'll be a place we'll start. If this is the first time you've been here or the first time in a long time, you've come on a great day because we're starting a brand new study today. So you'll have to come back every week after this so you don't miss anything. Uh, but we, uh, we just wrapped up uh, the book of James last week after we spent um, several months, um, really about nine months studying through that. And so today we're going to open the book of John and see what it has to, to teach us. But what we're going to do first is uh, I just want to take today's message and I really want to set, set us up for the study of John, um, help us understand where it comes from, the, the purpose of the book of John, um, what, what is it that, that, that God, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that John was writing to us uh, that we would understand and know from these things. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, we find this, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have now to open your word together over these next few minutes, and we ask that as we do so, you would quiet our hearts and our minds, that you can speak to us today through your word. Lord, I ask that you would help me to, to not say anything that would hinder what you would like to do today in our hearts and lives and that you would help me to clearly communicate the truth of your word today. We are so thankful for the testimony of this man who walked with you, who talked with you, who learned from you, who struggled uh, mightily at times to obey and to see what you, uh, the importance of your ministry and Jesus here. Lord, as he looked back on his life and uh, he shared these things, we see the, the, the whole reason of it all is that we would believe we would have life in Jesus Christ, and we can live that life in him. And we ask that above all else today, you would be exalted and glorified, and we would walk out of this place different than we came in, because we have heard your truth proclaimed, and you apply it to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the things that you learn as you go through school is that often, perhaps, regrettable art form of writing papers. Now, how many of you out there just loved that assignment when you were in school, writing these research papers, okay? There's a few sick of, sickos, I mean, uh, people out there who really relish that opportunity. Uh, I was not always a fan of the long hours of research, the formatting, the reformatting, the revision, the rewriting, and sad to say, because I wasn't a fan of that, that didn't always, that, that would carry over into the work that I put in, and you can guess how that went. It didn't always go very well. And so often, I didn't always do what I should have done, and my grades, they reflected it in those projects. And just so you know, pastoring is a lot less glamorous sometimes when you realize that you write about two to three research papers a week, okay? The difference is, of course, is you're writing on something you're passionate about, that you're writing on something much better, you're looking at the Word of God and looking at these things. Um, but one of the things you learn when you're writing a good research paper uh, is you need a thesis statement, you need, a reason, you, need to, you need to communicate clearly to people what you're writing about and why you are writing it. And it's, it's often, you know, one of the most challenging parts of a paper to write is to come up with a concise way to communicate at the beginning or to communicate to the reader, hey, this is what we're writing about and this is why we're doing it. This is the direction we're going. And today, 
We're going to introduce ourselves here to the Gospel of John. And, and in John chapter 20, those two verses we just read, we're going to see the whole thesis statement, why the Gospel of John is written. What's the point? What's the purpose? Who is it about? Why is it written to us today? Because John's subject is not just a topic. It's not some theory. It's not, you know, one of these other things that you may have picked a paper to write on. John's subject is the king of kings. He is a man who who is more than just a man and whom John had a personal relationship with. His subject is Jesus. And now John writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That, By the way, that Holy Spirit was promised to John by Jesus. And he writes to engender a response in his reader. And he states very clearly that that response that he wants to engender in the reader is that the reader would have placed their faith and trust. They would believe in Jesus. And that word belief is an interesting word. And it's a concept that's under attack in our day. Because belief seems to no longer require a firm and consistent object. What are we often told? Well, as long as you believe your truth, right? As long as you really believe something in your heart, then you'll be okay. And John says, it's not just about this idea, some idea of a belief. There is a firm and true object of belief that we are to have if we're going to find eternal life, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the one who changes our lives. He is the one who came to give himself for us. And there is clearly and and undoubtedly one way to God and only one true object of belief, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what we see today is that the Gospel of John displays Jesus' deity and calls for our response to him. It's really that simple as you look at 21 chapters of John. That the whole picture is given to show us that Jesus isn't just a man or even a good man, but he is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. He is the one who came to give his life a ransom for all. He is the one who came and lived the life that no one else could live, that he could die the death, that no one else could die, that he could rise again and offer you eternal life. He offers you a new life. He offers you a changed life in himself. And so today, let's set up a study of the book of John. But to do that, the first thing we need to talk about is is what we call the good news. And that is the Gospels. You see, throughout Scripture, the whole of Scripture, the 66 books that you find, the 39 in the Old Testament, the 27 in the New Testament, one incredible theme emerges as the driving force of the entire Word of God. And that theme is the same theme of the book of John. It is Jesus. From the very beginning, in Genesis, he is there, the second member of the Godhead involved in creation. At the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, he is prophesied as the coming deliverer who will crush the head of the serpent. Throughout Israel's history, all signs point to Jesus. The sacrifices during the exodus that God institutes for his people remind them that there is a price for sin that no mere man can remove. The leaders of God's people, whether they be the, 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 the ones who led them out of the Exodus, Joshua who led them on the conquest of Canaan, the judges, the kings, over and over again, they painfully illustrate the damage of sin on, a, on the lost and broken and dying world. The prophets 
point ahead to a day when the Messiah will come and the work that he will do on behalf of man, his very personal creation. And then you turn over to the New Testament, and throughout the New Testament, the writers of history, such as the book of Acts and the letters of instruction, show the glory of Jesus and the change that he brings in our lives. The church grows out of faith in Jesus and spreads his name. The instruction of Paul and of James and of Peter and of other writers teach us how those who know Jesus as Savior can and ought to live for him because of what Jesus has done. These letters are both doctrinal and practical, expounding on the wonders of Jesus and the ramifications of life in him. The writer of Hebrews does a tremendous job examining the scope of redemptive history and showing the reader one theme, Jesus is better. And you get to the book of Revelation that closes the New Testament and points ahead to a day when Jesus will return and claim final victory, eliminating sin and Satan once and for all. And if you notice, I skipped a section as we went through. Because right in the middle of it all, you find four books that open the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we typically refer to these as the Gospels. This is a critical genre of scripture. It is is one on which everything else hinges. The first four books of the New Testament are not are not just something you take at a cursory glance. They're not merely history for history's sake. No, the first four books of the New Testament are the greatest story ever told. It's the story of the incarnation, the birth, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. The word gospel literally translates to good news. And that is exactly what these four books are. They are the good news of what the Bible is all about. Jesus, the Son of God. God himself in human form. They share how he came from heaven to live on earth as the God-man that he redeemed sinners to himself. And so, as you approach the Gospels in private reading or in personal study or in public proclamation, it's important to remember their focus. When you open the Gospels, understand that these are not just some historical record. Now, they contain history. They record things that happened. But they are not an all-encompassing set of historical records. Indeed, each of the four Gospels, they don't take every part of the life of Jesus, but they use selected material to accomplish their respective goals. And it is just as well, because to write even a comprehensive history of even the life of Jesus would be impossible. Look in John chapter 21, I invite you to look at the very last verse that John writes in his gospel, John 21, 25. He wrote there, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which they, if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Try as you might, you can never write down all the things that Jesus did or all the things that Jesus is. He is infinite God. It isn't possible. Instead, the writers, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, selected certain instances from the life of Jesus to record. These instances 
uh, have a very special name, okay? And here you go, if you want your $5 word for the day. The, the instances that the writers record are called pericopes. Yeah, it's a funny word, okay? It looks like pericopes, okay? But it's pericopes. And as you go through the New Testament, as you go through the Gospels, these instances in the life of Jesus are what, what you look at. And they all have a different reason for doing so. They all have a different driving force for these things. They drive the theme and the purpose of the book along. If you open the book of Matthew, you'll find that as you go through it, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience presenting Jesus as the king. He is the one who will reign on the throne of David. As you open the book of Mark, Mark is a totally different uh, uh, approach because Mark isn't written to Jews. Mark is written to a Roman audience, to Gentiles. They don't need to know or don't care to know how, how all these things fall into Jewish prophecy. And so Mark quickly, through 16 chapters, makes his way through the life of Jesus, showing Jesus as the servant. And then you open the book of Luke, and you find that Jesus is presented there as the Son of Man. And each gives us this incredible look at who Jesus is and leaves us with implications of these things on our lives. He doesn't just leave us there with, this is who Jesus is, but it leaves us with, and, and so therefore, you, we have to do something with that. You cannot ignore Jesus. His life, ministry, death, and resurrection demand a response. It is vital to keep Jesus central then as you study the Gospels. And it's here now we see then that how does John relate to these other Gospels? Because I haven't mentioned John yet. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often called, I put up here on the screen for you this word, they're called the synoptics. The word synoptic comes from a Greek word, and it means to see together. These three Gospels, though all taking different emphasis and a a different theme, follow a similar outline, and they usually contain similar events. I don't know if you've ever spent time reading through, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but perhaps you've noticed this, that what you read in Matthew, as you read through Mark, you you kind of read some of the same things, and, and same in Luke, and sometimes you'll find the same thing recorded in all three, and sometimes the wording will be almost identical, sometimes it'll be a little bit different. Because sometimes they have different perspectives on that. They tell different details of what happened. But there's a lot of shared material. And then you come to John. And John is something of a loner. He's kind of all out there by himself. Because the subject hasn't changed. Jesus is still the subject. But the approach is is different. The material found in John is different than the other three Gospels by a long shot. Just, Just consider some of these things. As you work your way through the book of John... You will find no record of Jesus' birth, his baptism, his transfiguration, his temptation, his agony in Gethsemane, or his ascension. You will find no parables, no discourses on the end times, no healing of lepers, no exorcism of demons, no list of the apostles, or even institution of the Lord's Supper. And by the same token, over 90% of what you find in the book of John, you don't find in the other Gospels. So in some ways, as we said, he's an outlier. But it's not a weakness, nor is it a theological problem. Because if we said, how much material is there in the life of Jesus? The difference between the Gospels is not a contradiction. It's just just because John doesn't include some of the things the others, or he does include some of the things that others don't, isn't a problem. Because Jesus' earthly ministry, that's that's what's primarily covered in the Gospels, lasted about three years. And these differences, though clearly observable, 
are not something to be blown out of proportion either because the Gospels present to us a clear and cohesive message of who Jesus is. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah who came to save his people from their sins. The Lamb of God who is the Savior that died on the cross and rose again. So we ask ourselves, we've considered the synoptics and we consider John, why the difference? Well, first the synoptics and John complement one another as perfectly designed by God himself. See, the things that we have recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the perfect complement to what John is saying. And what John records after Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already written complements exactly what, what is said there. We find longer discourses on some of the things that are even covered in the synoptics. The dating of John is another reason in the relation to the Gospels that gives us some insight. Because from what we can deduce, John was written a good bit after the other three Gospels. So what is he going to assume, even as he writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that, that, that they are, you're familiar with the things that these other three men have written. So therefore, there's no need to cover those again. So he's going to take a different route. And this beautiful fourth Gospel gives us an amazing picture of Jesus for a man who served with him in the time of his earthly ministry. So let's take a few minutes and consider that man, John the Apostle. And I may call him a disciple. I use those terms interchangeably because he was a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, who then became one of the 12 apostles who was, primary, who was, who was helpful in the formation of the church as Jesus ascended back there in Acts chapter 1. But what we see here is, is John is the author of this gospel. Let's talk through that because as is common in the Gospels, actually the author is not named. John doesn't open with, hey, this is John, the disciple, writing you this Gospel. But we can examine the evidence to learn the author of this work. And I want to begin from outside of Scripture, and then we'll go inside of Scripture. I want to begin with one reference outside of Scripture, which is the earliest mention of John the Apostle as the author of this book. This comes from a man, his name was Irenaeus. He was an early church father who lived from 130 to 200 A.D. And in his book, he wrote, or in his work, he wrote this, it was called Against Heresies. He wrote this, afterwards, that is, after the synoptic gospels were written, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. And there's an interesting and valuable point to note here that Irenaeus was a disciple of another church father whose name was Polycarp. And what's really interesting is Polycarp was a disciple of John. It's an interesting connection. You have one generation away, this man talking about the book of John that was written by John the Apostle from a man who had been a disciple, who had learned that from a man who had been a disciple of John. But from within John itself, we can make some deductions and observations. Now, these were made not by myself, but as I studied for them, I found these in William Hendrickson's commentary and also the first commentary written by John MacArthur on the book of John. And we're not going to go through and look at every reference on these things, but, but these are the things as you go through the book of John that you will find. Number one, the author of the book of John is most obviously a Jew. He is someone who is, who is from Israel. He is someone who is familiar with the things of Israel. And more than that, he's a Palestinian Jew, one who lived there in Israel. He's also then an eyewitness to the things that he described. As he, as he recounts the, the stories, 
He tells the details of one who stood there and watched these things happen, who, who heard the things that Jesus said, who heard the things that the other disciples said. He's also seen, we also see that he was definitely an apostle as seen in his relation to how the twelve were thinking and feeling. And then what we come down to is that he was the apostle John as seen throughout the book in various clues. Because while John never names you know, says that he is the author, we also find that, that the author does a great job of never naming John by his name. Instead, he is called the disciple whom Jesus loved. You're in John chapter 20 or 21. We're going to be there in John 21. Look at verses 20 through 24. We have here one of these instances that takes place. It says, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who had also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord... Who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his his testimony is true. So here, the the author identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we understand, then, that he was present at the Lord's Supper, where only the disciples of Jesus were present. The crowd then is further narrowed. If you go back up to John 21 and verse 2, we see that it's recorded Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So the ones that are named in this verse, Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, those three we, we rule out as the author of the book of John because they're named and John never names himself. The author never names himself here. But then the closeness of this disciple one who leaned on Jesus' breast, one who was near to him and knew things about him, rules out the other unnamed disciple. And so what we learn as you go through the Gospels, you learn that the three closest disciples to Jesus were Peter, James, and John. They were kind of the, the inner circle of the disciples. Well, Peter we ruled out because he's already been named. And James then, we say, well, maybe it was James, the brother of John. Well, you can rule him out because the dating of this book, when it was written, James is already dead by then. He was the first to be martyred under, uh, at the time of the church being established. And so by process of elimination, we're left with John. This man was greatly changed by Jesus and was used by God in an incredible way. So very briefly, let's talk about John and what he did. John was the younger of one set of brothers who were part of Jesus' disciples. His older brother, his name was James, and they were the sons of a man named Zebedee. They were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, and John and his family seemed to be prosperous because we learn as we read about his family that they had hired servants and they owned their own boats. We read that his mother's name is Salome. She was a follower of Christ. And it's actually very possible that she was the sister of Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, which would make Jesus, that would make Jesus and James and John cousins. John shows up first 
as a disciple of John the Baptist, and we'll read about that in John chapter 1, and after a short time that he spent with Jesus, he is called by Jesus to follow him full time as a disciple, to leave his nets, to leave the fishing business, and to give his life to following Jesus Christ, as Jesus would say, to become fishers of men. And John, along with his brother James and the apostle Peter, he was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And what we know about John is that he was zealous and very passionate for the Lord. And early on in John's life, his zeal for God and his passion for God were not tempered with the love of God. We need the love of God in our lives to temper the passion for God because if we have passion and no love, it's going to look like, well, it's going to look like this. Let me tell you about the life of John. At one point in the ministry of Jesus, James and John, uh, they went to a Samaritan village and and the people there rejected Jesus. And so James and John, in their very um, straightforward manner, came to Jesus and, and, and asked him this question, would you like us to call down fire upon that city since they rejected you? Zealous, yes. Loving, no, right? And by the way, I think they were very zealous thinking they could call down fire from heaven to, to, to burn up all those people. Another instance we have recorded, and it's really one of the only times we see John acting alone, we read this in Luke chapter 9 and verse 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. And Jesus would go on to rebuke John, saying, hey, those who are not against us are for us. Those who are following me. So along with his brother, John was zealous for the greatness of God's kingdom. We read at a couple points that they selfishly pursued that greatness, especially in Mark chapter 10. Yet, he was not unchanged by Jesus, and John became a humble, loving servant of the Lord. I mean, goodness sakes, we get to the gospel of John, and you never read John's name recorded one time. For someone who was one of the closest of Jesus' disciples, that's a pretty big deal. Later, he is seen in his writings honoring Christ, not himself, and showing love and compassion. In Revelation, John refers himself as a servant of God. So here's the thing. God takes us where we are, but he wants to change us into what he wants us to be. In Christ, there is no such thing as, well, that's just who I am. But there is, this is who he can make me to be. God doesn't, doesn't expect you to come to him and stay where you are. He, he, he's going to change you and mold you and make you into who you should be in him. Now, John never lost his passion for the truth. God, John never quit defending that truth to the very end. John, though, is the only apostle also who escaped a violent death. He wrote five books of the New Testament, he wrote this gospel, he wrote three letters, and he wrote the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation he wrote while in exile on the, on the island of Patmos. And this gospel is the personal eyewitness testimony of a man who experienced Jesus firsthand and in person, and he saw the effects of Jesus on his own life. I want to reference you to 1 John, which is a letter he wrote 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. Listen to what he writes there. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. 
When John writes to you about Jesus, he's not writing to you about an idea he's heard. He's not writing to you about some concept. He's not writing to you about, well, I know so-and-so who knew so-and-so. He's telling you, I walked with him. I talked with him. I touched him. I was in his life. He's writing you a firsthand eyewitness account of who Jesus is and what he's done. John's life was radically transformed by Jesus. And this is the one whom God gave, would use to give the message of his son in this way. And so very quickly, let's look at the details of this gospel. The first is, is the date. We observed earlier that the book of John was written after the synoptics. And from that statement uh, about the rumor of John living until the Lord's return, we can also deduce that this was probably written after Peter's death. Peter died somewhere around 67 to 68 A.D. And so that reference there probably tells us that, that, that probably it was written after that time. Uh, there's also no reference to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which took place in 70 A.D., which means it was probably removed far enough from then that he didn't feel the need to mention that. People knew about that. And so as the evidence is examined, it seems reasonable to describe a date for this somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D., probably in the midst of that, somewhere around 85 A.D. is when the book of John was written. It's one of the later books in the New Testament. And this is 50 or 60 years after the ascension of Jesus. Where does the book come from? We read earlier, I read you that quote from Arrhenius, and that's really one of the, um, one of the, the largest um, uh, pieces of, of, of evidence we have about where John was written from, that John was most likely written from Ephesus when he wrote this. He was there. Paul had planted a church there. We read about that in Acts. And then John was part of the leadership of that church or involved in that church in some way. And while he was there, he wrote this gospel. And then who is the, who is the audience of the book of John? Well, it would be easy for us to say it's the Jews, and indeed it is. He wrote to his own countrymen. But it goes far beyond that because we also read uh, the stories like uh, of Philip bringing the Greeks to Jesus in the book of John. And, and we realize that John didn't write this just for the Jews, but he wrote it for the Jews and the Gentiles. The Messiah of Israel is clearly presented. John leaves no doubt, especially in those first early days of the calling of the disciples, that Jesus is the Christ. That's a title, the Messiah, the one who has come to save his people from their sins. But he also presents Jesus to, to all who would listen. That he is the Savior of the world. The salvation of all who come to Jesus in faith is highlighted time and again. And that brings us to our last thing today, and that is the gospel's theme. See, there is a purpose. And really, this is, there's, there's great uniqueness here in the passage that we read this morning, because not every one of the gospels... Uh, really, none of the other Gospels gives us a purpose statement so clearly as John has given us his purpose statement in John chapter 20. I refer to you there again, John 20, verses 30 and 31, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John wrote with this purpose in mind, to bring the reader to the point of belief in Jesus. Not just some mental assent 
that there was, in fact, a man named Jesus who walked on this earth. No, he's, he's not looking for you to agree with him. He's not looking for you to say, oh, yeah, sure, there probably was a guy named Jesus. No, he's writing, calling for a response, that you would believe in Jesus, that you would place your faith and your trust in him, that you would follow through on what you say you believe is true. His examples are given to show that Jesus is worthy to be believed. In fact, throughout the, the book of John, that verb, to believe, is used 98 times. Belief is a big deal to John. It is of vital importance that John and his readers, to John that his readers believe in Jesus. He wrote them to convince the reader of the identity of Jesus Christ. So everything John selected is to show us that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one whom John's countrymen spent hundreds of years looking forward to. He is the one sent to make right all wrongs, to fix what is broken, to give his life for all. He is the Son of God and God himself. And that confirmation of identity is meant to draw the reader to a saving faith in Jesus for eternal life. See, John seeks to throw his arm around you and bring you to Jesus. Why is that? Because he is the only way to eternal life. John wrote to show us that the only way to true eternal life is in Jesus. And an eternal life that, 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 that John talks about in these verses, it isn't like some package that gets dropped off on your door. You know, probably like you, every week, you know, we have all these packages that show up from Amazon and other places, and they get dropped off, and, and they go on. And, and that's not what John is talking about. He's not talking about some gift or, or some delivery. No, what he's talking about is far more than a mere transaction. What he's talking about is life transformation. What he's talking about is adoption into the family of God. He's talking about a new identity, a new relationship, the beginning of a new life that lasts forever. He says that believing you may have life in his name, that you would be in him. John's mission from Jesus we read in, in Matthew chapter 28, was to go and make disciples. You can't do that if you do not reach others with the good news of the gospel. And so John's gospel is both evangelistic and apologetic in nature. And by apologetic, we mean as a defense of the faith to show who Jesus is. His material is selected carefully to show us Jesus' authority and his identity as the eternal God. And belief in him brings about this life. So, so everything John writes is to this end, that he may introduce to you his Lord and Savior. And if you sit here today and you say, I, I know Jesus as my Savior. I, I know I have a relationship with God. You know what the book of John does? It draws you deeper and deeper into a relationship with him as you continue to see who he is through the eyes of one of his closest disciples. The most wonderful thing about a relationship is the more time you spend with that other person, the closer you become. Relationships take time. 
They take effort. They take getting to know. And, and the same is, is with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We must spend time with him. We must know who he is. And that is what John seeks to do, to show us who Jesus is. John calls for faith in Jesus, and he strengthens this faith. I love what one pastor said. He said, faith is believing in something or someone on the basis of evidence and then acting upon it. Faith is, is taking action, of placing trust, of, 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 of going deeper into the things of God. And so then John's purpose colors our theme for the book of John. Because the theme is always Jesus. I mean, that's the subject of God's word and particularly the Gospels. The driving goal then is faith, a true and all-out belief in him. So very simply, we may state this theme as the theme of the book of John. Life in Jesus, the Son of God. There is no life outside of Jesus. There is no Savior outside of Jesus. There is no fulfillment outside of Jesus. It is in him and him alone. He is the eternal son of the eternal God. And as you go through the book of John, you find this outline that develops. Because within the book, there are several things that stand out. So, a couple of these things, and then I'll give you a brief outline of the book of John. In John, he records seven miracles. Now, obviously, as he said, there are many miracles that Jesus did, but there are seven that are chosen in particular. And John doesn't just give you the miracle, but he also gives the response that comes about from that miracle. Why? Because John's driving goal is to show you there is a response that we all have to Jesus. Whether you decide to embrace him or reject him, whether you decide to trust him or to walk away from him, you will have a response to Jesus and what he does. Also, Jesus will give a discourse on himself from some of these um, miracles that he does. Particularly, Jesus talks about that he is the bread of life after he has fed others. We also read seven statements that are called the I am statements of Jesus, showing us who he is as the Son of God. But in the end, there are four large sections that emerge as, as those that comprise the book of John. The first is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and this really is the prologue to the book of John. It, it sets us up. It shows us, again, the establishment of who Jesus is and, and what he's done and why he came. We'll start to unpack that a little bit next week. Second, in verse 19 of chapter 1, all the way to verse 50 of chapter 12, you find what is commonly called the book of signs. This is where Jesus' work is put on full display. Throughout those chapters, you'll see the, things that, the seven things that, Jesus, that John chose to show us about Jesus. You'll see some of those discourses. You'll see some of those things that, that he did that teaches about himself. And then beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, all the way to chapter 20, verse 31, the verses that we read today, is typically called the book of Passion. And really, those chapters, those eight chapters taken from 13 to 20, really cover somewhere around a, a 24 to, to maybe a 24-hour um, period, maybe up to a few days. But they primarily encompass the Last Supper with his disciples and then the, the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And then eventually you'll get to the resurrection. 
But it goes, what, he, what John shows is all the things that Jesus taught and did during that time. And then in chapter 21, verses 1 through 25, John closes his gospel with the epilogue. And here John wraps up all the things that, that happened there. And he gives information on some of the disciples as he prepares to, to show us the next step in the things of God. And so we see here in the gospel of John that there is life in Jesus the Son of God. And the Gospel of John displays Jesus' deity and he calls for our response to him. It is an eyewitness report on the greatest subject of any study, Jesus, the Son of God. And as we prepare to undertake this study, my question is, where do you stand? How would you describe your relationship with God? Are you struggling with faith in who Jesus is and what he's done? Do you struggle to wrap your mind and your heart around what God has said? My friend, John is writing to you. He wants you to see the Son of God given for you that you may have eternal life. In this gospel, you will be confronted with a man who was not just a man, but God incarnate. You will see one who does the most incredible things, for he is God. You will observe the love of God manifested in flesh who calls to you. Will you ask God to show you himself and help you believe on him? He will reveal himself to you as you seek him. To those who claim Christ as Savior and seek to serve him, how will you approach John? You know, it's it's very easy to come into something and say, well, this is just another book of the Bible that the pastor's chosen out that we need to study as we go through. Or will you come with a heart longing to know your Savior more intimately and personally? Because he will continue to fill you with awe and wonder of himself and challenge you to greater growth as a disciple if you let him. There is life in Jesus, the Son of God, and that life is eternal, it is rewarding, and it is available to all. And I look forward to the wonderful time that we have together seeing what John has to share with us about Jesus Christ, about who he is and what he's done and what that means for our lives today. Father, we thank you for this wonderful time we've had to be in your house today. We thank you for the word of God that is given to us, that has been preserved for us to read today. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who illumines for us these things that we may understand. Thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us here on our own, but you have been very clear about who you are, what you've done, who we are, and how we can have a relationship with you. Lord, I ask that as we prepare to open this study of John, that you would give us hearts that hunger and thirst after the things of God, that we would want to know the truth, and that we would realize that it is the truth that will set us free from our sin, that it is the truth that will draw us closer to you, that it is the truth that will change us from the inside out. May you apply that truth in our hearts, and may we come ready to embrace it wholeheartedly. Lord, I ask that you would 
be with us now as we prepare to go home. Um, and Lord, we ask that you'd watch over and protect us. Be with those who will be coming back tonight for Vacation Bible School. We ask that you would give us a great week together, showing the love of Christ. And Lord, we ask that um, you would uh, have freedom to do your will in our hearts this week. In your name we pray. Amen.